0: Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karmateksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled, What is Vajrayana Buddhism? Part 1, by Lama Kathy Wesley. Tibetan Buddhism is often described as Vajrayana Buddhism, but what does this term mean? With this talk, Lama Kathy will start a multi-part Dharma Talk series by describing the difference between Sutra and Tantra Buddhist scriptures and how we practice Vajrayana at Columbus KTC. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Take Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Good morning. This is Lama Kathy Wesley, and I am appearing to you this morning on uh, Facebook and YouTube as part of the continuing series of the Columbus Karma Takes Some Choling, Tibetan Buddhist Meditation Center of Columbus, Ohio, presenting our Sunday morning Dharma talk. I hope all of you are doing well and that your new year so far has been uh, how should we say constructive for you and I hope that your dharma practice is going well and your meditation is going well and I look forward to uh, having a discussion with you today as part of our Dharma talk those of you who are on uh, the um, the various apps if you're on social media uh, today and you're watching on YouTube or you're watching on Facebook feel free to say hello and uh, and also, if you have any questions about the particular topic that we're uh, discussing today, um, uh, just let me know. Because uh, the the name of the topic is "What is Vajrayana Buddhism?" and uh, part of the um, uh, part of the reason um, that I wanted to talk about this is because uh, Vajrayana Buddhism is uh, how should we say. Uh, sometimes not easy to understand, and uh, and because it's not easy to understand, uh, folks have questions, and they want to know what makes it different from the other two yanas, the Hinayana and the Mahayana, and, uh, and so forth and so on. So especially since Tibetan Buddhism, which our center represents, is considered to be vajrayana buddhism people say well what makes tibetan buddhism different from other types of buddhism and so i'm going to uh start uh today will be the the first of a two-part series on the topic of vajrayana buddhism and i want to let you know that um that uh, the uh my talk today will be in part based on, uh, on uh, this particular book. Let's see if I can put it into chat and have it show up for all of you. Yes, there it is. Uh, the, the name of the book is uh, Creation and Completion, um, the Essential Points of Tantric Meditation. And, uh, and the, the, there's a link to being able to uh, purchase it from our home monastery bookstore in the chat. So uh, in fact, Uh, I'm just going to put it up here just for a second. There you go. Uh, And so what you can do is that you can go to the Namse Bangso bookstore, N-A-M-S-E-B-A-N-G-D-Z-O dot uh, com. Uh, You can go to that website and then look for the title and the search function. So in any case, uh, you can also look in chat and I will um, put it in the descriptor also. Uh, I am not really going to be using the entire book. I am uh, mainly uh, going to be using the introduction in this book, which was written by uh, a Western Lama, Lama Sarah Harding. And so her um, uh, her introduction to the book is just an excellent way of talking about the three yanas and and how we can relate to each one of them. Uh, so um, I'm going to uh, get go ahead and get started now. And uh, and at the end of the talk, if you um, have a few minutes, I have some uh, Columbus KTC building news for you. So you can uh, check in at the end of the webcast and uh, I'll have uh, an update for everyone about what's been happening this week. Uh, um, let's see. Hashtag good news. OK, so anyway, I'm going to start with a short recitation of the, um, the four line refuge prayer and written by the great Indian master, Atisha. I'm gonna recite it in English. And you can kind of join in in your heart and in your mind thinking that you dedicate this time we're spending together to the benefit of yourself and all beings. In the Buddha, his teaching, and the order most excellent, we take refuge until enlightenment is reached. Through the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. In the Buddha, his teaching, and the order most excellent, we take refuge until enlightenment is reached. Through the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. In the Buddha, his teaching, and the order most excellent, we take refuge until enlightenment is reached. Through the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. And now I'll recite a short prayer. Uh, of my own uh, to uh, the guru uh, and to the masters of the lineage. The prayer in English means uh, precious uh, root guru who is sitting on a lotus and moon seat above my head. Please grant me the blessing of your body, speech, and mind. O <laughs> palden Okay, thanks everyone. Uh, so uh, to talk about uh, what is Vajrayana Buddhism, we have to, I think, first, um, answer the question, uh, what is uh, Buddhism uh, itself. And in, um, in, the, um, uh, in the introduction to the creation and uh, completion uh, book by uh, uh, Kenshin Trangarubhichai and Jamgankanchal the Great, Lama Sarah Harding talks about the, uh, about the history of Buddhism uh, going all the way back to the historical Buddha who lived in the 6th century B.C., and, uh, and he uh, started life as a prince who eventually renounced his kingdom and became a wandering um, yogi or spiritual practitioner. And uh, the way she tells his story, she says that, she, uh, he, that he renounced his kingdom in the search for wisdom. And uh, that's a, a theme that repeats in lots of various types of, of spiritual literature. And so she says, after an inner journey of many years, in fact, it was six years that he spent studying with all the great masters of his day, he experienced a total awakening or spiritual enlightenment. And then he went on to teach about this experience uh, for the next 45 years of his life. He died in his uh, 80s. Uh, India, she says at that time, had a strong tradition of contemplative meditative practice, uh but um there uh, but the teachings that the Buddha gave were new and unusual uh for his time and place, and so during the the years that he gave his teachings, his teaching developed uh over and evolved over the the years into what are known as the uh three turnings of the wheel of Dharma. You see, there are lots of ways um that you can categorize the Buddhist teaching. Uh, you can uh, categorize the Buddhist teaching by time, meaning when he gave the teaching, when what part of his teaching life, that 45-year period, when did he give that teaching? So you can divide it by time. You can divide it by place. You can divide it by audience. You can divide it by uh, the inner view of that uh, philosophy. You can divide it by the practices he taught. You can do all kinds of different um, uh, classifications and so forth. Uh, when we talk about Buddhism, you can divide it and classify in lots of different ways. And since the Buddha's passing, lifetimes, learning how to categorize and study and practice the teachings of Prince Siddhartha Gautama, who became later known as the Buddha. And so the particular method of description of the buddhist teaching and the classification that we're going to use today uh, is going to be called um, the three turnings of the wheel of dharma now um this is an interesting this is an interesting point because um because during the time of the Buddha's life, there was something called the, um, the, the philosophy or the theory of the wheel turning king. That is that there was a, a universal monarch that was thought to exist uh, or to come into existence somewhere who would be both a, a temporal ruler and a spiritual ruler. And so this, um, it was, this person was called the, turning, the the king who would turn the wheel. Because the word dharma means truth, and the idea of turning a wheel is the idea of setting in motion, setting in motion the practice of this truth. So turning the wheel of dharma is setting in motion the teachings that bring us to the truth. And so uh, this is um, the particular uh, the particular, uh, classification and, and uh, that. Sarah, Lama Sarah Harding is using in her introduction. So um, the, uh, the next thing uh, that she talks about is the uh, is the differ- are the differences between these uh, two. So let's talk about the first uh, turning of the wheel of Dharma. Let's talk about that. And um, uh, based on the on the the work of the scholars that she's consulting. And these, um, these teachings, uh, in, in, in the first phase of these teachings, the Buddha taught what we now know as the four noble truths. He taught the truth of suffering, that suffering is part of life, and that it's something we all experience, and that it is in pretty much every part of our life. That's the truth of suffering. The second noble truth is the truth of the, of the cause of suffering, meaning that the Buddha described what brings suffering into our lives. And third, the truth of the cessation of suffering, meaning the Buddha taught that that there is, since suffering has a cause, it also has a solution. And And then the fourth of the Four Noble Truths is that there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. So these Four Noble Truths, suffering, its cause, its solution, and the path are part of the first turning of the wheel. The the Buddha had to do a little bit of convincing with uh, with his first and initial students because most of them were always looking skyward to the heavens, to the gods for their inspiration and for their philosophy and for their spiritual practice. And the Buddha decided to come from a different direction. He decided to come from the power of his own inner spiritual illumination. So in other words, his experience of being able to see these Four Noble Truths, what, what suffering was, what, how it was caused, how it was resolved, and the path that led to it. His own personal experience influenced and informed the way he taught. And so, um, and so the, in, this, in these four topics, suffering, its cause, its solution, and the path, he included everything. In other words, there was nothing in the world that he he saw as being outside of these four truths. In other words, no one in the world and nothing in the world was exempt from these four truths. And so it made his philosophy um, holistic in that way, in that his teaching and philosophy then covered everything. And so... The, um, one of, there are two really important concepts that the Buddha emphasized in this first turning of the wheel of Dharma. One was impermanence, and the other was interdependence. Impermanence and interdependence. Let's talk about impermanence. The Buddha said that, uh, that there was nothing in this universe, in this world, that lasts forever. And, there, and that everything in this world once it begins, it comes to an end. And so nothing is permanent, everything is moving. In fact, he went on to say that every, uh, everything in this world, my glass of water, the table over there, whatever, it was slowly decaying in front of our eyes which is really interesting because that's eventually what physics teaches us, that atoms, molecules, and so on are constantly in motion and are only kind of casually here because of causes and conditions. And those causes and conditions form the second part of the first turning of the wheel of Dharma, which is the teachings on interdependence. Not only are things impermanent and always evolving and moving, they're also interdependent upon one another. There is, for example, there is no long without short, there is no dark without light, and so forth. And so everything is interdependent and works together and is enmeshed together. And in fact, the the Buddha went so far as to describe this world as being like a, a cycle. And that was why he came up with the title or name samsara, because The word samsara indicates the idea of an ocean, vast and wide. And samsara, the idea is that our world of cyclic existence, of of continuous impermanence, continuous interdependence and impermanence, he called this world samsara and that its nature was suffering. And so having given this teaching, he was able to say that since suffering is part of life it has a cause and that cause he described as clinging and fixation we cling to things we cling to people we claim to cling to situations we cling to ideas Uh, all we have to do is turn on the television or listen to the radio to know how many ideas there are and how ideas can separate people so we cling to all of these things and but it is the clinging itself the buddha said that caused our suffering And knowing that clinging and fixation cause our suffering is the first step to the solution to suffering, which is to let go of clinging to suffering and let go of clinging to its causes. And so of uh, all of these teachings, he he gave and it was in the fourth of his Four Noble Truths, he taught the path that leads to the end of suffering. And that path consisted of the Eightfold Noble Path. Which are which is really briefed down into uh, uh, four basic statements: do no harm, practice virtue, tame your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha, which really that means only three. Do no harm means to not harm yourself and not harm others. Practice virtue means to take care of yourself and benefit others, and tame the mind means to meditate. And so, if we meditate, the Buddha said, we may ourselves encounter the wisdom and illumination that he encountered in his meditation and attain enlightenment just as he did and in fact i guess you could say that's the most radical thing that the buddha taught was that all beings have the potential to achieve enlightenment just as he did and so and so what this meant was that all of the structures of the society he lived in that said that people were unequal were smashed by his philosophy that any being Any human being could become enlightened. And so that meant that everyone was equal. Men and women were equal. The lowest of society and the highest of society were equal. And so in that way, he taught equanimity, the equanimity of all. all. And in fact, later, as we will find out as we discuss the third uh, turning of the wheel of Dharma, he said that all beings uh, possess Buddha nature and possess the potential uh, for awakening. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, in order to, to practice this Eightfold Noble Path that he taught in this first turning of the wheel, the Buddha started his Sangha of monastics. He called them the left home, that they actually went forth and left their homes and left society and went to live in community. And in living in community, they were able to support themselves by asking for alms and, uh, and asking for food. And by doing that, they were able to support. They're doing a virtue and they're uh, refraining from negativity as well as their meditation. So they were able to practice the Buddha's Eightfold Noble Path because of the generosity of their uh, donors. And so uh, there's one thing I left out that I think is important to note. And that is um, if all of this clinging is the cause of suffering, Lama Sarah in her introduction says the Buddha actually kind of winnowed that down, 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 and said at the bottom of it all, at the bottom of this cycle of of uh, suffering and so on, he said at the bottom of it is the concept of self, me or I. And so and once we have the concept of self, that means we automatically have the concept of other. And in that, that way, we divide the world into two. By dividing the world into self and other, we create this dualistic friction that causes all of our pain and suffering. And he said that the experience of enlightenment is the undoing of that separation and the bringing uh, into unity of the concept of self and other, extinguishing that concept and bringing about a state of wholeness. So as, uh, as individuals, sounds interesting, but how do we do it in practice? And so this uh, became the practice of the uh, of the followers of the Buddha during the time of the first turning of the wheel. They practiced um, excellent uh, conduct. They practiced the refraining from doing negative things, and they did deep meditation until they themselves attained a state that was free of suffering. And so... Um, And so the people who received and practiced and accomplished this teaching and actually accomplished the goal were called arhats, or the destroyer of the foe. And in this particular case, the foe is self-clinging and selfishness and self-fixation. And so having conquered the foe of their own ego fixation and transcended the wheel of birth and death and rebirth that the Buddha talked about when he discussed describe this ocean of samsaric suffering that takes place lifetime after lifetime after lifetime until we can get off the wheel by practicing and, and studying his philosophies and teachings and gaining enlightenment ourselves. That's the way to escape the wheel of birth, death, and becoming. It, this wheel of samsara is by practicing. And so by practicing this these teachings and meditation, we ourselves could become free. And so this was the uh, the outcome or the, the blossoming of the first uh, teaching of the um, the first turning of the wheel of Dharma. So the goal was then to um, attain one's own liberation from the cycle of existence. And uh, and then uh, the way she describes it in her book, in her introduction, Lama Sarah says, these teachings developed over time into at least 18 separate schools of Buddhism. And today they are represented by the school of the elders called the Theravadan tradition, which is, uh, which is prevalent in Sri Lanka, uh, Myanmar or Burma, Thailand and Cambodia and so on. And so that's a little bit about the, the history of the first turning of the wheel of Dharma. And um, I think I need to go back before I get, go on to the second uh, turning of the wheel. Um, and um, and talk a little bit about uh, about what it is that causes and brings about suffering, because uh, I want to get a little more granular about that before I move on, because this will help us understand how the teachings that the Buddha gave in each of the three turnings counteract the problem that we find ourselves in. Let me uh, let me explain. The Buddha ex- said that we were uh, that we have. The potential to become Buddha. So, if we have the potential to become Buddha, why aren't we Buddha like right now? And he described uh, four veils that uh, that cover our Buddha our Buddha potential. Four veils that cover our Buddha nature, our uh, our potential to become Buddha. And uh, and the first of these uh, four veils is um, is uh, ignorance. spelled that right. Let's see. Did I spell it right? Yes. Uh, So the first of the four veils is ignorance. In other words, we don't know we have Buddha nature. We don't know that we have the potential to become awakened. And because we don't know, we are bewildered about who we are, where we're going, and what we're doing. And that pretty much leads to the the second of the four veils, uh, which is habitual tendency. So the second of the four veils is habitual tendency. In other words, because we don't recognize that we have the potential to be Buddha, we instead fall into the habits of previous lifetimes. And that habitual tendency is toward believing there is a self. There is a person thinking these thoughts. There's a person having this experience. And this person who is thinking these thoughts and having these experiences, this person is us, me and I. And so, me and I are the, uh, I guess you could call it the expression of ignorance and the habitual tendency toward a self. The third of the four veils is uh, what happens when um, uh, we posit uh, self and other. We have drama. Okay, and the drama is the is the third of the fourth veils, which is called um, mental affliction. So once there's self that we believe in and that we actually think is kind of supreme and other, which we kind of think may not be as good. We have the drama of wanting the self, wanting to conquer other. We want to get hold of and control our environment and control everything that's in it. And so, by controlling these things we uh we think we have happiness we think we uh we can get what we want and we can get what self wants once this once the self fixation identifies a goal and begins to head toward it then we can we will use whatever means necessary to get what we want, whether it is a subterfuge uh or or anger or uh, whatever we choose to use, that mental afflictions come about because we believe that self is real and we believe that other is real and we do believe that self is supreme and we do believe that other is not as good and so we want to get what we want and so we try to control our environment. And this causes, as you can imagine, a lot of drama. And that, that drama, Uh, can come to its, uh, I guess you could say, to its uh, logical conclusion uh, with the fourth veil, uh, which is called karmic accumulation. Yes, we act on those mental afflictions. We act on our negative thoughts and feelings and so on. And so then we accumulate negative karma. And that continues to... to make our situation complex and difficult and prevent us from seeing our Buddha nature. So if you look at all four of these, the, if you look at uh, the basic ignorance, that prevents us from seeing our Buddha nature. And then if you look at the habitual tendency toward positing a self, that makes it worse. It makes it harder to to see our Buddha nature. And then, uh, then m- mental afflictions get a, keep us all bewildered and going around and around and around and around. And that prevents us from seeing our Buddha nature. And then lastly, the karmic accumulation just solidifies and hardens the whole process. I use the example, and it's probably not a good example because it's kind of gross, of a snail creating its own shell. It starts with just a little bit of slime, and that little bit of slime gets harder and harder and harder until it becomes the shell. And it's like that's what we are. In a way, we're like that in that we start with this concept of not knowing we have Buddha nature. We start with the ignorance of not knowing. We have the Buddha nature, and then we posit a self, and that's our habitual tendency, which we've been doing for lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. We've posited a self, and once we have self, another, we have the drama of mental affliction. And once we act on those mental afflictions, we we harden them and make them uh, more uh, powerful. Uh, So in that way, we have uh, we have created our own reality for lifetime after lifetime. And because we have also we don't just have bad karma. We have good karma. Our good karma comes to fruition in our connection to spiritual things and to virtuous things and to good things, to to uh, being generous and being kind and being loving and being compassionate. Our good karma, we have created good karmic habits as well as negative karmic habits. And our job in this life is to Im- improve and in- and enlarge the number of good things we're doing and decrease the number of negative things we're doing. So in a way, the Buddhist philosophy is quite freeing in that even though the situation has been somewhat predetermined, meaning that we are in samsara and we're a little confused by it, if we study and practice the teachings of the Buddha, we can become free from these confusions and delusions. So anyway, I wanted to explain a little bit about the four veils first, because you can see once you understand what they are how the three turnings of the wheel of dharma address these and then in uh and then i'm hoping to get through the other two of the um of the turnings of the wheel shortly and then after that i can do some questions and then next time we'll talk about the practices of vajrayana buddhism and how the practices of vajrayana buddhism help us to uncover our buddha nature so uh let's uh, let's uh, go back here Uh, Since we uh, were talking about uh, the 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 three turnings of the wheel in the let's talk about the second turning of the wheel. So the Buddha didn't just teach one way to one group, his teaching style and his teaching method and even the content of his teaching progressed and evolved during his lifetime. So uh, and so, uh, after his death, his teachings be, uh, were studied by many uh, philosophers and scholars and Buddhists, and they began to categorize them. And the the second phase of his teaching um, came uh, was the second turning of the wheel uh, was it, it was illuminated for us uh, human beings with the discovery of what is called the wisdom literature a new phase of Buddhist literature that began to spread somewhere around um, 100 BC and uh, 100 uh, AD. So about uh, several hundred years, I mean, about a hundred years after the Buddhist death, his, his monastic sangha got together and uh, and they continued to recite the teachings together because that was the main way that the sangha held the teachings was through memorization and so eventually those teachings were written down and uh and in somewhere a few hundred years after the buddha's death the what's called the wisdom literature or the prajnaparamita literature emerged and was championed uh, by great buddhist masters of its time and these uh the two great ideas if the two great ideas From the first turning of the wheel of Dharma were uh, uh, impermanence and interdependence. The two great ideas that came out of the second turning of the wheel were an understanding of the empty nature of self and phenomena, as well as the understanding of the role of love and compassion in attaining Buddhahood. And so um, if you remember uh, from the first turning of the wheel, the Buddha said that what we think of as the self is not solid, it's not real, it's not permanent, It's uh, and it's not unchanging. In other words, because of interdependence and impermanence, even our self-concept is not permanent. He argued against the idea of a material soul and instead argued in favor of the idea of mind, big M, uh, a mind which continued uh, from life to life, and had never been created by anyone. So this concept of mind, big M, mind, having always existed from the no beginning of time and always existing to the no ending of time, this idea of this continuity uh, of uh, of, I, of mind was his answer to the idea that we had a material soul that was created by Uh, a god and that would return to the god at the end of our lifetime and so instead he said that uh, that this this self-concept was actually empty of solidity empty of reality and empty of limitation Uh, so the mind he said it had no color no shape no location no beginning no end And so in this way, he argued against the materiality of the mind, saying that it wasn't made of atoms, molecules or matter, that it was actually um, it actually was uh, much more subtle than that and came from long ago and continues and continues to evolve. Um, And those of you who know um, that uh, I spoke uh, earlier about uh, earlier this past fall about the possibility of studying Traalike Rinpoche's book, uh, Karma, what it is, what it isn't, and why it matters. I wasn't able to get that book study together for you for this uh, for this fall or this uh, winter, but uh, my hope is that uh, after Lama Adam and Lama Mitchell do their book study in the spring, uh, that we'll be able to uh, we'll be able to study the Karma book then. Anyhow, it's it's still it's still in process. But in his book, Charlie Rinpoche explains really well. Uh, what mind is and how it's different from the concept of material soul. So in the second turning of the wheel of Dharma, the Buddha said, what's good for our uh, description of mind is actually also good for our description of phenomena. He described the world as being uh, the, the coming together of the two truths, the truth of the way things appear and the truth of the way things really are. I frequently, my my trusty water glass often serves as my example. This appears to be solid and real and permanent and unchanging. However, if we analyze the, uh, the contents and composition of this, we will find that it is made of smaller and smaller and smaller parts, and that each of those parts is actually impermanent and decaying and only comes together because of causes and conditions that are interdependent. So we could say that this glass doesn't exist in the way we think it exists. In other words, it it exists relatively. The truth of how things appear is the truth of being able to describe them as having a color, a shape, and so on. But the ultimate truth is that, that it doesn't exist the way we think it exists. And this helps to loosen our grip on the four veils, or it actually loosens our grip on basic ignorance, which then allows the four veils to become thinner, thinner and weaker and weaker. And so in this second turning of the wheel of Dharma, the Buddha taught the emptiness, not just of self, but of all phenomena. And so after uh, after he's, and, and the way Lama Sarah Harding uh, describes this, he said she after describing the two truths the relative truth of the way things appear and the ultimate truth of the way things really are she she writes this with um no ground to stand on and no concepts to cling to the causes of suffering are no longer operating this is wisdom the opposite of ignorance which must be perceived experientially through meditative practice but not just by a philosophical contemplation and, compassion then so that's how emptiness was taught in the buddhist teaching but where does compassion come in compassion comes in she says uh, it's the recognition number one that other beings are actually also embroiled in this wheel of uh, of samsara everybody else is on this wheel of suffering with us and that they're um Their suffering is not inevitable, but it is sort of self-perpetuating. It sort of goes round and round, unless we have an insight into the cyclic pattern. And the person who begins to comprehend the true nature of their mind and phenomena, they naturally feel less self-cherishing, and naturally they, uh, they feel more love and compassion for other beings who are stuck in the wheel and can't get off. And so compassion then continues to promote this um, this selflessness. And so in a way, the Buddha taught a complete system for understanding ourselves, a complete system for understanding others, and a complete system for getting off of the wheel of birth, death, and uh, karma. And so uh, and so in this way, the beings who practiced this second turning of the wheel of dharma, remember in the first turning of the wheel, the people who practiced it became arhats or the destroyer of self-fixation. In this particular philosophy of the second turning of the wheel of dharma, the followers were called bodhi, B-O-D-H-I, sattva, S-A-T-T-V-A, bodhisattvas. And bodhisattva, bodhi means awakening, and sattva means a person who holds the mind of awakening. So this person who is loving and compassionate toward themselves and loving and compassionate toward others and takes both emptiness and compassion as a path, emptiness being the ultimate path and compassion being the relative path, this person is a bodhisattva in training. And when they reach realization through this practice, they're called an enlightened or arya. Bodhisattva. So this is a little bit about the second of the turning of the wheel of Dharma, and um, and I see some um i see some comments and questions, and we'll be getting to those as soon as I finish this last topic, uh, the third turning of the wheel. Uh, the third turning of the wheel of Dharma uh, has to do with um, uh, the uh, the the third phase of the Buddhist teaching. And the 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 oh by the way the second phase of the Buddha's teaching this second turning became known as the Mahayana. Maha means great and yana means vehicle. So the Mahayana uh, practices then came to be practiced in many parts of Asia, including China, Japan, and Tibet. And so now we're going to talk about the third turning of the wheel of Dharma. So, in the first turning turning of the wheel of Dharma, the Buddha said. Um, taught about the four noble truths, suffering, its cause, its solution and the path. And he taught uh, interdependence and impermanence. And in the second turning of the wheel, I'm sorry, in the first turning of the wheel, he taught interdependence, impermanence, and the uh, the impermanence and interdependence of the idea of self. In other words, he taught about the uh, the non-ultimate existence of self-concept, that self-concept was kind of a fictional idea that we Painted on our experience in order to solidify it. Second turning of the wheel of Dharma, he taught emptiness and compassion as a path to reversing our tendency to cling both to self and to phenomena. And then finally, in the third turning of the wheel, he went in a little bit deeper uh, on the subject of emptiness because some people taking the hearing the teachings on emptiness thought, oh, Well, this means that the Buddha was teaching nihilism. In other words, the Buddha was teaching that nothing exists and that nothing matters. But that's not what he was teaching. And in fact, he went on to teach about something called Tathagatagarbha or Buddha nature. In other words, he said, emptiness is empty of everything except Buddha nature. And and here's what Lama Sarah says about that. The third phase of the Buddha's teaching was based on all of these same concepts, but with a further development, that of Buddha nature, the inherent potential for enlightenment. This seemed to spring out of the the meditative experience of a radiant awareness or knowing capacity inherent in the mind, which could not exactly be just empty. And so what she's saying is that through the practice of meditation, it can be easily seen that the mind is not empty, it is continuously experiencing something, whether that experience is coming through our senses, whether it's coming through our mind all by itself, because even when we are sleeping and our senses are supposedly asleep, we still have an experience, and that experience is in the mind. And so this mental uh, capacity for experience and knowing, even when we're asleep, they, they came to understand this as the mind's Buddha nature, the mind's radiant awareness. This radiant awareness was said to be spontaneously present. In other words, we didn't have to whistle it up and bring it from somewhere. It was actually this radiant knowing awareness was always part of us and is always with us. I'll never forget what the, the master Mingyur Rinpoche said about awareness. He said, it's there with you at all times. When you're awake, when you're asleep, even when you're in a stupor, your awareness, your mind is aware and present. And so the third turning of the wheel was where the Buddha talked about this spontaneously present awareness that he called Buddha nature. And he taught methods for this spontaneously present awareness to learn to know and experience itself. And so that is what he taught in the third turning of the wheel. And so uh, he he uh, uh, talked, uh, Sarah, uh, Lama Sarah Harding uh, says, this nature is an integral part of every single sentient being. So here's where animals come in. Even animals have Buddha nature. There There is differing opinions on whether they can come to a realization of their Buddha nature or not. But the fact is they have it. So uh, she said, this nature is an integral part of every single sentient being and endows that being with the opportunity to become enlightened. Enlightenment then comes to mean the recognition and the full realization of this true nature of the Buddha that one already is. So the goal is still the liberation of all sentient beings. So the teachings of this turning of the wheel, this third turning of the wheel, belong to the Mahayana. And the practitioners of the third turning teachings are still called bodhisattvas. The literature connected with this phase as well as with the other ter- two turnings of the wheel are called the sutras. So sutra it is like it's it means the teaching of the Buddha. It's the word sutra refers to the teaching of the Buddha and the teachings that he gave. The discourses attributed to the Buddha Shakyamuni are called the sutras. The idea of Buddha nature that developed in this last phase is crucial for an understanding of another kind of literature that existed in Buddhist India, that of the tantras. And so the the tantra refers to a special kind of literature of esoteric teachings and also to those teachings themselves and their practice. And the path of tantra can also be called Vajrayana. Vajra means um uh, indestructible and yana means path. So so basically the vajrayana is not so much a uh, a a separate yana as it is uh a um, as as it is a method of practicing understanding the mind and a method of understanding the mind and practicing the mind that comes from the tantras liter- the tantric literature. So let's talk let's talk briefly about these uh these three yanas the three yanas are uh have to do well actually i, I won't have enough time to talk about the three yanas darn well the, let's let's just say that we'll start with this next time the hinayana uh that is the first of the uh, yanas and um it is not synonymous with the uh, path of the elders that was described uh, previously but it is the path that is uh, aimed toward the liberation of oneself alone and so that it, it's it the hinayana is not so much a philosophy as it is an attitude and and um and um motivation for practice and so that's the uh, so that's the first of these uh, yanas or vehicles, again, it's about self-liberation only. And then the Mahayana uh, is, um, is the, um, the, called the path for the liberation of all. That's why it's called the greater vehicle. Kephikartha Rinpoche, when he was describing the yanas, he said, you know, the Hinayana practitioner is afraid of samsara and wants to escape it and they want to do it they they just want to get out as fast as possible and not worry about anyone else so he said he said there that's their motivation but in the mahayana uh, it's as though the the person is co- feeling compassion for everyone who is stuck in samsara with them and wants to put them uh, take them all along on the path to awakening so uh Kempurvice used a, a fun analogy he said the hinayana practitioner is riding in an automobile the Hinayana practitioner is uh, is riding in an automobile that only seats one person, as opposed to the Mahayana practitioner who is basically driving a bus. So uh, you can be the bus drivers of Dharma if you hold the bodhisattva attitude of wanting to take all beings to awakening with you. So, um, so that's a little bit about the two main yanas. The Vajrayana, on the other hand, is actually uh, the... Uh, the uh, let's let's see if I can type this in. Vajra I can't spell it. R A uh, is the um, Mahayana with special practices. In other words, the person who is a Vajrayana practitioner actually is a Mahayana Buddhist, but is using special practices in order to uncover their Buddha nature. Kartha Rinpoche used an interesting analogy. He used an analogy uh, of a sand pile. And this is probably where I'll stop today and then pick up next time. Is uh, in the Hinayana and the Mahayana, uh, he said, it's like uh, the example of of a big box, a we'll call it a sandbox filled with sand, and that someone drops a gemstone into that sand pile and that the gemstone sinks beneath the surface of the sand into the sand pile. We didn't see that jewel go in, but we know it's in there somehow. But we don't know where to look and we don't even know that there's a jewel there. So the instruction in the Hinayana and the Mahayana are to carefully peel away all the different methods, uh, all of the different layers, you know, all the different layers of uh, confusion and delusion until the gem is uh, exposed. But in the Vajrayana, we have special methods for finding the Buddha nature, and we can merely just put our hand down in the sandbox exactly where the gem is located and pull the gem out. This is why teachers are important. According to my teacher, he said, this is why teachers are important, because they tell you where in the sandbox to dig. They know us and they are able to help us find the method that will help us to become awakened. So uh, so in other words, if you're a Vajrayana Buddhist, you're actually a Mahayana Buddhist, but you do special practices that help you to uncover your Buddha nature much more quickly than you would if you had to dig all the way through all of your confusion and delusion to find the Buddha nature within you. So um, that's where we're gonna stop uh, for for now. And then the next time we talk on this topic, uh, we'll be be able to to talk about what Vajrayana practices are and how they help us uncover our Buddha nature. So thank you for listening uh, to this first part of the talk. I'm gonna do some questions now. uh, and uh, just thanks for listening to the first part of the talk uh, and uh, and to get a little bit of an idea of where these teachings come from. I'm going to go all the way back uh, to the top and see. Oh, thanks to everyone who's here. Thanks to all the folks who said good morning. Uh, oh, fantastic. Uh, let's see. And then there's my notes. And let's see. Oh, yeah, that's very cute. Uh, Tom, Tom says uh, when we were talking about the, uh, uh, let's see where it is. Soon the glass will be experiencing emptiness and you'll no, more, no longer need to put water in it. Yeah, I, I get that one. And then the other thing that he said, was well, we all agree it's a glass, but where is the actual glassness of the glass? This goes back to um, a wonderful book by uh, Tronga Rippenshake called The Open Door to Emptiness, which I still don't co- totally understand, but I love the ideas of it. He said that in the Mahayana, uh, and the Buddha talked about the emptiness, the inherent um, emptiness of things by using logic and reasoning, which is probably why it's not so much my, my, my forte. He said, this glass is made of parts, but which of the parts makes it a glass? Which Where is glassness? Is it the, the opening? Is it the bottom? Is it the side? Is it the other side? What where is glassness? And he said that logically we can say that there is no such thing as glassness, which is kind of like deep. And uh, let's see. And then here's the the next question is, did the Buddha teach the six perfections in the third turning of the wheel? According to uh, the the um, uh, the teachings of Gampopa in his book, The Jewel Ornament of Liberation, the, the six perfect virtues uh, were taught in the Mahayana, and they're part of the Mahayana teaching. Uh, if you remember, the um, the six perfections are generosity, ethics, patience, diligence, meditation, and wisdom. These uh, six perfect virtues help us to gradually uncover our Buddha nature. It's like digging in the sand pile slowly and gradually over time in order to find the jewel and so uh yes he did teach that as part of the second turning of the wheel let's see uh let's see here's another another comment uh, didn't the buddha mention that it was a more secret practice vajrayana i don't know if the buddha uh, gathered everybody around and said Shh, this is very secret he might have actually done that because if you read some of the tantras Uh, which are attributed to the Buddha Shakyamuni who appeared in the form of different Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. That's a little bit of a spoiler alert for next week or next time I I talk because uh, that's um, how the tantras are attributed to the Buddha. They said he appeared as the, as the uh, as the Buddha Hevajra, or he appeared as the Buddha Kalachakra, or he appeared as the Buddha Chakrasamvara, or he appeared as the Buddha Vajrayogini, and so forth, and then spoke these uh, tantric literature. Um, and so, um, I guess you could call it some ways a secret. Although I I kind of bristle a little bit at the word uh, secret because um, I don't think it's necessarily like um, masonic lodge secret handshake secrets, but In a way, it talks about uh, instead of the word secret, I sometimes use the word uh, most inner instead of uh, instead of the word secret. I'll say most inner. Uh, I'll say that it's secret because it deals with our most inner truth, our most inner truth, which is our Buddha nature. And so in a way, you could say it's even self-secret because we already have a buddha nature and don't know it and so you could say that it it's it, it's almost our buddha nature is almost a secret to ourselves and so i guess the path for uncovering it would necessarily be uh, something that would be most inner uh, okay let's see if there are any other questions um uh, let's see uh let's see here Thank you, uh, uh, Amos, uh, for uh, helping out with the uh, Sanskrit names for the six paramitas. Or uh, let's see. In fact, I'll I'll put this up so that folks can see it briefly. Um, uh, this is the uh, these are the names of the word paramita means to the other shore, and so that's um, that's why they're called perfect virtues or perfections because the it is through these. Uh, Practices that we come to the other shore of Buddhahood. and you can see that all of uh, them—generosity, which is uh, dana; shila, which is uh, uh, which is uh, ethics. Uh, Oh boy, I can't pronounce it. Ksanti, uh, which is um, uh, patience, Um, and then uh, diligence and meditation, and so on. Um, um, That these different uh, virtues help us to. Uh, uncover our Buddha nature. Uh, Let's see. Oh, yes, you can. uh, Somebody said uh, somebody said they're sorry they missed the talk today. Uh, Yes, definitely listen to the podcast because you can you can find you can watch rewatch these videos either on uh, Facebook or YouTube because they will be available after the fact. But you can also listen to them on our weekly podcast. Thank you, Don Fortner, for being our podcast man. Let's see. Let's see what this question is. Are the teachings of the first, second and third turning of the wheels essentially the four seals or truths? You know, I would say that um, that there are two ways to talk about the four truths. There's the four seals of Dharma and then there are the four noble truths. They're somewhat they have somewhat similar um, topics, but somewhat different. The uh, the four. uh, Yes. In other words, to start by answering the question backwards, saying all of the Buddha's teaching, all of the Buddha's teaching can be summed up in the four noble truths. Suffering is part of life. Suffering has a cause. Suffering has a solution. And there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. There's nothing that is with that is outside of that. And there's also nothing that is outside of what are called the, the four seals or the four marks. And I am going to try before, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find this or not, but uh, bec- for some reason, I have a hard time remembering them. And, and so I have to look them up every time. The, uh, here they are. I'm going to put them in chat. The four seals of Dharma are all compounded things are impermanent all emotions are painful, all phenomena are empty, nirvana or liberation is beyond extremes. So once again, all compounded things are impermanent. Everything made of parts is impermanent, which is like everything. And all emotions are painful, meaning that if we cling to any state of mind, even happiness, it can, it's painful because Emotions naturally posit self and other and clinging, and it's that clinging that causes the pain. The clinging and the craving causes the pain. Even in the midst of happiness, there's a little bit of fear mixed in with that happiness because we're afraid it will be taken away from us. All phenomena, the third one is all phenomena are empty, meaning they don't have uh, an inherent existence of themselves and by themselves. They didn't, that glass of water did not create itself. They don't exist of themselves or by themselves, but uh, with they they exist in connection with other things or in relationship with other things. In other words, interdependently. And uh, then the answer that is, in other words, when we come to an understanding of our Buddha nature, when we come to an understanding of our Buddha nature, we have we enter a liberation that is neither one or the other in other words it's not it's not existence it's not non-existence we our experience of mind then enters into a place that is beyond extremes and is is of the nature of happiness and uh, i'm super sorry that we don't get to read all of these fantastic um uh comments that are here uh on the um oh you guys did great today wow this is just a lot of good stuff here um let's see uh the last question i'll take today is should we not have emotions well i got good news and i got bad news the uh the 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 bad news is that as long as we are in samsara we are going to have emotions so we even if we wanted to not have them we will have them i'm super sorry the idea is since there is since since we have the idea of self then automatically we have the idea of other. And then there's the interplay between the two. And that is by nature, emotional, because I want something and I want it to be my way. So while we're stuck in samsara, there will always be emotions. And this is why, this is really why the teachings of the Mahayana are so powerful. Because one of the greatest teachings in the Mahayana is called uh, Lojong. Or, or mind training. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm running over a little bit today. I apologize for keeping you longer. But lo means mind and Jong means training. And it trains us how to work constructively with our emotions. So it's not that we have to get rid of our emotions because we kind of can't until we become Buddhas. But what we can do is learn how to constructively engage our emotions. Uh, so a person who is a lojong practitioner has enough, um, oh, how shall we say? Has both uh, technique and determination. They know techniques, and they know, and they have determination to engage their emotions, not run from them, and not try to stuff them down in a hole. The person who is a lojong practitioner faces their emotions, works with their emotions in a constructive way, and in so doing, tries to transcend them. That's a whole another wonderful topic we can address. So uh, hope uh, uh, hope that is uh, okay and that that is, uh, is that's uh, helpful for the person. So uh, so uh, James, who asked the question, you don't have to you don't have to get rid of emotions. You just need to learn what they are on the inside and then learn how to engage those emotions in a positive way. So uh, you guys are amazing. Uh, so, um, I, I have to stop here because, uh, I promised you an update for Columbus KTC and I'm sorry, I made you wait all the way to the end. Uh, but, um, I do want to let folks know that, um, I, I don't know how to like put an animation in here that has like, uh, glitter and, uh, and streamers and everything, but we got our certificate of occupancy from the city of Columbus building department. Woo! Happy dance. And so what this means is that the keys to the building are being turned over to us. Yay. And, uh, and that this means that our next step is to uh, clean and arrange and fill the building because it's just an empty shell right now. So, so over the next few weeks, we're going to spend the time working on making the place a home. It's now a shell, but, and it's finished, but there's a little more work that has to be done to meet building code requests and requirements, we got to do that stuff. And so what's going to happen is that we're going to be meeting again with our uh, advisors, our team of uh, reopening advisors. And there are actually medical professionals on our team of advisors. And as you know, right now we're in the midst of the Omicron uh, variant of the coronavirus. And so And this is a highly contagious uh, variant that can really hurt people who are immunocompromised. And so we have to talk to our doctors about how best to bring people inside where the virus can proliferate. So we have to kind of get a plan. We thought we had a, we thought we had a good plan, but then Omicron came on. And so those of you who were hoping to hear about that plan during this coming Wednesday's um, Sangha meeting, I'm so sorry to say we're going to have to postpone the Sangha meeting until we can meet and talk about the new reality of the Omicron variant with our medical professionals. But we will, we will get back to you um, very soon. In fact, I just wrote an article for our newsletter uh, today or yesterday uh, about this. And so this week's newsletter will contain a few more details about that, but the basic news is it's done. And, uh, and it's almost six years to the day because uh, the, the 31st of January, 2016 was when We uh, when when the fire happened uh, to our building there at Rich and Grub and six years later, we have we have a new center. So. um, And as somebody in the comments is saying, may it be of benefit, man, do we ever make the aspiration that this be of benefit to everyone who sees it because it could be visible from the, the West Side Freeway in Columbus, you can like drive down the freeway and see it going both directions. May it be of benefit to everyone who sees it, hears of it, thinks of it, says, Oh, that's weird. And so on. And may it be of benefit. So here's where I have to stop. Uh, so, uh, now, here's where i have to stop for today uh, but i want to thank all of you for uh, fantastic really great questions today and uh really good engagement and i'm looking forward to talking more about this later i do have another dharma talk that is scheduled for the end of uh, the end of january but because it's so close to the anniversary of the fire I might actually talk about the the fire in the last six years on the 30th of January because that's my next dharma talk, and then we'll have to finish the Vajrayana talk in February. But uh, I hope you're okay with that. Uh, but I just thank you for being here. Let's call together all the merit that we have um, that we have accumulated through this talk, and through our engagement, uh, and dedicate it to all sentient beings with compassion, thinking may they be free from suffering, come to happiness, and then to Buddhahood. Here's the short prayer in English. Through this merit, may all achieve the omniscience of Buddhahood. May it defeat our common enemy, wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may we free all beings. May we free all beings. May we free all beings. Thanks to all of you and Omane mehong. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Tegsam Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.